wanted to have a conversation this evening uh, about Malaysia and what God's doing there um, with Greg. Greg's been there the last three years, as you heard him say this morning. Uh, I've spent a couple summers there, and so it's a place that's dear to my heart. And, uh, and just to be frank with you guys, I would love for us to be praying as a church about what it would look like for Poplar Spring to begin uh, a partnership with um, Malaysia and an unreached people group there in the Malay. And, uh, and so we're praying through that as elders and as deacons. And, and uh, so this could be the beginnings of a conversation about that. And so uh, let me pray for us and ask the Lord to be with us in this time. And then we'll, uh, we're not all three talking. Me and, me and David are up here just to pick Greg's brain. And he said it may be a little, uh, a little more conducive for our sleepy uh, selves after lunch if it's a conversation and not just a, a lecture. So that's why we're up here. We're just going to ask him a whole bunch of questions, and I hope uh, we can all benefit from them. So uh, let's pray together, and we'll, we'll begin. Father, we thank you for this day you've given us, a good day, a day that we could be in your house and worship you with your people. And God, we take it for granted uh, so often uh, of the sweet fellowship that we have here at Poplar Spring. And God, we thank you that we can have that in Christ, that as brothers and sisters through the blood of Christ, we um, are a family that you've knit together. And God, as we begin to have a conversation about what you're doing all over the world, especially among an unreached people group in the uh, country of Malaysia, God, we pray that you would prick our hearts, um, give us a, a burden and, and open our eyes to the darkness that is all around the world, and as Greg mentioned this morning, God, um, help us to have a righteous anger about the, of the fact that there are people in this world right now that have never heard the name Jesus, and God, would you move us, and, and even a conversation like this, move us to action, um, that we as a church would respond and pray about where you would have us partnering all over the world um, for the fame and renown of, of Jesus Christ in the gospel. So we love you, and we pray that you would be with us in this time. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so we've got some questions um, that may be more just introductory. That would be uh, the kind of stuff people like to know when they go on mission trips and what the culture's like, those kind of things. And then we'll move as we go through the questions into more uh, spiritual, what the Lord's doing there, uh, what does it look like to partner in Malaysia, those type questions. And so, um, and then at the end, we'll, uh, if you guys have had something that maybe we overlooked, we'd love to hear questions that you guys may have specifically, specifically for Greg uh, as, it, as it relates to his life and ministry, what God used him for there in Malaysia, or what it would look like for us as we pray through partnering uh, in Malaysia. So um, David and I are just going to go back and forth with some questions, Greg. Uh, what's, and these can be as quick, rapid fire as you'd like them to be, or you can elaborate as you feel like everybody. Hello? Yep. Yeah, you're good. Everybody here wants me to r rant for about an hour and a half. On each yeah. question. Yeah. Somewhere I've got 21, there. so if you Two. go 30 any, minutes. Any takers for three? No. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so what's the, what's, the, what's the country like, like as far as climate and the country of Malaysia? Very hot country. Um, it is um, pretty close to the equator. Um, it's a rainy season or a dry season, but hot all year round. I did not know this prior to moving there, and so when I ask you this question, I'm not assuming people to know this either. Malaysia shares a border with two countries. Anybody know which two countries those are? Anybody want to take a stab at it? Okay, yes. Borneo. Yeah, so Singapore to an extent. Um, what's the one in the north? 
Thailand. So it shares a border with Thailand. Of course, Singapore is right there at the bottom. And then there are two states. Malaysia is made up of 13 states. Two of those states are on the island of Borneo, which is a, there's three countries on that island, which is Malaysia, Indonesia, that part of Indonesia is called Kalimantan, and then there's Brunei. Um, Sultan of Brunei is one of the wealthiest people on planet Earth. And uh, so it's a hot country, and uh, climate um, is, is about like what June and July is around here. June, July, August, that's pretty much what it is year-round. But a lot more humid, too, so you're sweating pretty good. What's the, uh, how, big is, how big is the country? Uh, tell us, I guess, the, the states you're talking about, the ones in Borneo, and then the other side with QL. QL is on, which, which part is QL on? Uh, Kuala Lumpur. Kuala Lumpur is in mainland Malaysia. So you've got mainland peninsular Malaysia. Uh, everybody, anybody ever seen the Twin Towers before, the Petronas Towers? So no, Alfred has, but there's, that's what's iconic in Kuala Lumpur, that capital city. And so that's peninsular Malaysia that's connected to Thailand. And then you have uh, two states, Sarawak and Sabah, that's on that other island. And so I'm, I'm giving you ballpark estimates of what I think is 30 million people total for the whole country. I think maybe 30 million, so somebody needs to fact check me or something like that. And, um, what, is that it? You, you already got it? No? Got it. Okay. Uh, urban? City dwellers? Rural? Uh, it's mainly rural except for when you go to the um, main city areas, which is Johor Bahru, Ipoh, Penang, uh, and definitely Kuala Lumpur. Uh, those are your major kind of urban areas, but most places are your village-type spots. But they've got everything, man. You've got more KFCs than you've ever seen. There's more Starbucks in Kuala Lumpur than you've ever seen in North Carolina. I mean, there's that many. Uh, one of the guys that I got to really walk down the path of uh, sharing my faith with him and uh, having a great time, he got all the way to the point of almost coming to faith and then completely walked away from it. Uh, in the end, his name was Ezat, but he was a manager of a Krispy Kreme in a mall, and that was in Kuala Lumpur. So you can go to Kuala Lumpur and, and eat, some, eat some Krispy Kreme. So uh, you've, got, you've got a great urban uh, context in Kuala Lumpur, and then you've got your suburban areas as well, and then you've got your total uh, village areas that still you'll have your Internet connections and your KFCs and your McDonald's and your Pizza Huts and things like that. Um, so it's, it's, it's more modern than other people would want you to believe. So, What's the culture like? Um, culture is, is uh, it's an Islamic democracy. That's the country. So everything is guided by Islam, but they are on paper. They're open to all walks of life. So you have at least 40% who are what they refer to as ethnically Malay, Malay people. And so that's like the original people. There's another form of original people. That's mainly the predominant original people of Malaysia. And then roughly about 40% are uh, Malaysian, but they're Chinese. So uh, ethnically, they come from China. And then you have the 10% of a bunch of other things. But if you're in like a city center, uh, like Kuala Lumpur, I really need to speak specifically about Kuala Lumpur because that was my three years uh, time there. 
it's about as diverse as it comes. There's a large expat community of Australians, English, um, uh, Americans, people from all walks of life living there for a variety of different reasons. Uh, the Middle East loves coming. A lot of people from Saudi Arabia, they love coming and taking their vacations to that because it's an Islamic democracy. They can find all the Muslim halal kind of food that they want and uh, great places for shopping malls, tons of shopping malls in Kuala Lumpur. So the culture is just a, is a strong mix of everything. And there is a very significant Indian population, Indian population and population from Bangladesh as well. So you've got all this taking place in Kuala Lumpur. If you don't mind, I'm probably going to spend a little bit more of a pointed response re with relation to Kuala Lumpur than in Malaysia in general, because I don't think I should speak uh, you know, with authority on all of Malaysia as I could with my experience in Kuala Lumpur. So that's, that's the culture. And the culture, um, you can walk and you can function in English and get everything that you need in the city in Kuala Lumpur in English. You can go up to the 7-Eleven and you can buy your drink, your Mountain Dew, and you can figure out how to get money for your cell phone and top up and do all those things and go and if you want to find the Outback Steakhouse, which was a 10-minute walk from where I lived. So um, there's all of those things and it's a wonderful collision with first world and third world. So you can I'm, I'm not lying to you. Alfred knows what I'm talking about. You can be at this place called Jalana Lore, where there's all the street stalls at night. And one street over is like the red light district. So that's where all the prostitution takes place. The street above it is called Jalan Changkat, and that's where all the bars and the wealthy expats and Westerners come. And then just beyond that, right there, is the largest group of Bangladeshi Muslims who will get together and pray in an empty parking lot because these Bangladeshi Muslims are not welcome at the official mosque that is right down the road because there's too many of them. And the Malay people don't want to be crowded out by the Bangladeshi Muslims. So now the Bangladeshi Muslims are praying in this parking lot, and it is this uh, poverty is seen in the high-rises. Like what will take place is all of a sudden one apartment will be uh, rented out, and it'll be rented out to like one or two Bangladeshi men or Pakistani or people from Myanmar or something like that. And the next thing you know, there's 12 of them staying in one bedroom apartment. And as a result of it, what happens to that entire floor? It starts to, nobody wants to live there anymore. And the next thing you know, that entire high rise is overrun by uh, immigrant workers, either illegal or illegal. And the next thing you know, you've got slums of a high-rise, a huge one, right next to a state-of-the-art apartment complex where you've got legitimate security and you've got a nice pool and an exercise room and everything like that. So that is the culture. It's a culture of poor and rich colliding at the exact same time. What's your name? You wouldn't be able to understand it. <laughs> Gibberish. So you've told us a little bit about culture. Let's, we might be getting the cart ahead of the horse a little bit, but let's assume that maybe some of us in this room would go one day. Are there any cultural taboos you would say, as a Westerner, be aware? I think um, when you just approach things with kindness, uh, that covers everything. So I'm a lefty. Anybody else here a lefty? Eat with your right hand. If you, in some cases, most 
cases, it's, it's a, you're eating with a fork and a spoon, not a fork and a knife. But the very first time I was there was back way in 2005. I'm sitting at a table and I'm eating and I was shown how to eat. I'm eating with my right hand and I'm in conversation. Next thing you know, I'm eating with my left hand. I didn't even know it. This lady, this seven-year-old woman slaps my hand, slaps my hand. Then she starts to play with my food on my plate with her fingers, pinching the rice together, and then she starts to feed me with her fingers into my mouth. And in Jesus' name, did you let her? And I let her. And to this day, she's still like my grandmother over there, to this day. Like, I met her in 2005, and like, I love that woman. She's, Ibu is what I call her. And um, that's all taking place, and it was hilarious and awkward, and I cannot believe I was a 20-something-year-old guy that this lady was putting her fingers in my mouth to feed me like I was a little baby, you know? So some taboos is just about, like, just overall politeness that you would do here, you know? Have a kind heart and be polite. It'll take you a long way. The relationship that you have with the opposite sex is probably on another level, though. So by and large, you just don't interact with the opposite sex. So uh, even just to be seen with somebody of the opposite sex, there is already an inference, oh, something's going on with them, you know, that kind of thing. So, which I think is a kind of an honoring thing that is, is a good thing to see that takes place. And uh, it's very redemptive for the kind of work that we try to do. So um, I've, I've at times thought I was able to, like, shake a woman's hand, and, like, she wouldn't even put her hand out. And that's just something that you'd learn over time. So those are some of the cultural taboos. You drive on the left side of the road. You, um, you, if you shake somebody's hand, you kind of put your hand on your chest like that. You know, you shake somebody's hand, and then it's kind of just right here. It's just something that people do. And... Uh, Culturally speaking, uh, there is a tension between the Chinese and the Malay, the way that there's a tension between whites and blacks, or the way that there's tensions between Muslims and Jews, Arabs and Jews. So there is a tension, and you begin to learn that a little bit as it goes on. Are the Chinese Malay, are they, on the same, are they all over on both, in both parts of the, of the country, or are they just on one particular yeah, if you get to more urban centers, the more Chinese they're going to be. Uh, so that's the first thing. But Chinese, Malaysian, they're, they're all over Malaysia. But Sabah and Sarawak, they've got a great um, percentage, not majority percentage, but they've got a great percentage of Chinese, Malaysians in those two states. So you find them pretty much, pretty much all over the country. And, like, for instance, in Kuala Lumpur, there's a lot more Chinese Malaysians um, than if you would go to the little small town of Banting just outside of Kuala Lumpur. They're um, mainly Malay there. So, yeah. Something that everybody's interested in. Tell me, tell me about the food. Ooh. <laughs> KFC, Pizza Hut. You can survive on a Western diet over there. You can go to, uh, you can go to Subway. Uh, there's, there's Subway. There's, there, guys, I, I do, anybody like malls? I can't stand them. I, I, I'm not a mall person, but there are malls everywhere in Kuala Lumpur and in Malaysia, just all over the place. And you're going from one mall to the next because it's so hot, and that's what people do. They just go and they hang out at the mall. 
not necessarily for shopping, but that's what they do. And so I've, I know of, I've experienced with teams that came over strictly for shopping as a means of, you know, engaging people with the gospel. And they were successful at it. So that's pretty crazy. Um, there you go. So, so there are teams that have shown up. Uh, my friend Robin Duncan and her husband Rob, they've hosted teams that came over there, and all they did is they went around to the different malls and did shopping, and they introduced themselves to different ladies and people in the malls during that time, followed up with conversations, and, and uh, had a great time. And so back to the food, you got Malay food, which is all rice-based. You've got Chinese Malaysian food, which is rice or noodle-based. And then you have the Indian uh, influence. Now, it's a British, former British colony. So when it's a former British colony, that's when the Indians showed up. If it was a former British colony, one of the ways in which British established its dominance in some place is that because of India, the Indian population would follow along with them. And as a result of it, Malaysia has amazing food. But personally speaking, I believe it's because of the Indian influence upon Malaysia. So you've got like chapati, you ever heard of chapati bread or roti? It's like a flat kind of bread that's sometimes flaky. You can break it off and dip it into sauces. That's one of your basic standards for breakfast. A basic standard for breakfast is called nasi lemak, which means fat rice. That's pretty much what it means. And it's rice cooked in coconut milk, and it will have like a, a blob of some kind of spicy sauce next to it. It usually has like a fried egg fried chicken, and a little tiny pile of peanuts, and a little tiny pile of dried anchovies. And that would be what you have for breakfast. And you would just kind of eat it together, and I know that doesn't sound great. I'd leave the anchovies kind of to the side, and, um, but I'd eat the rest of it, and it'd be amazing. You guys would be surprised how amazing it is. But Matt would speak into it. There's some roti where you can do a bunch of things with bread. So they will fry the bread with an egg. So that's roti telur, and then they give it with sauce. Or they fry the bread with, like, uh, roti bomb is basically sugar, butter, condensed milk, honey, and it's just kind of all put together, and it's a, it's a heart attack on a piece of, on a, on a plate. So it's unbelievable. And, uh, and then you have uh, tea that can be hot or cold. Their sweet tea is as good as sweet tea you'll, you'll taste here in uh, North Carolina. I'm not lying. That's a game changer right there. I think we just got five people to sign up. Yeah. It's called, uh, yes. yeah, it's uh, tail ice. That's all it's called, tail ice. So I, I say I want tail ice, or if you want it with lemon, tail ice limau. And so you just get it, and everything's automatically sweet. So you have to tell them uh, tampagula, meaning no, no sugar, but everybody's, in KL, they speak English, so you say no sugar, and then they get that. But they're sweet tea, and then they have this other form of tea that's with condensed milk. That My goodness, I mean, it's unbelievable. It's really good. So that's the food stalls, and you got the Western flair, and then you got the Chinese flair that I haven't even talked about. All the kind of Chinese food that you can think of, it's there in Malaysia as well. Fish heads? Yes, that happened, and for me, my first experience with a fish head soup was uh, one that I was like, I don't think I'm going to revisit this one again, you know. Uh, it wasn't something that was, it was there on the menu at a, d- a bunch of different places, but I didn't, I didn't go for it as much. Any of y'all ever had satay before? 
Anybody know what satay is? Satay? Ever seen chicken on a stick? Grilled? That's satay. Satay is tremendously popular in Malaysia. So it's got, it comes with a little peanut sauce on the side. And so you can go there, and it's their version of chicken nuggets. I mean, that's pretty much what it is. So you go to these places, and you order satay, and you just order them by the dozens. You know, you just bring out a bunch of batch of satay, and then they'll have rice that's pressed down. Um, and you'll eat that as a meal as well. So it's good. What about monkey paw? Bad. We ha- Monkey hands uh, you did that yeah. i didn't do that <laughs> like, these, that's one i never had these monkey paw man let's let's watch so, this worm Durian? just just go with him and then you'll have monkey paw go with me and you'll have roti boom okay <laughs> no um durian anybody seen the videos about durian or anything like that the king of the fruits so king of the fruits it's one that you have it's uh, it will fall off a tree and if you're under it when it falls off of a tree it will kill you uh, because it's it's heavy and it's spiky. And so most of these trees have these nets that are underneath them to be able to catch them. And most hotels will have a sign that says no durian. No durian allowed. You will not be allowed to bring durian, the fruit, in because you have to cut it open with a knife. And then it's like this glob around a seed. And you eat the mush. It looks like um, like when a banana goes bad right? That kind of mush. It's around the seed and you eat it and you either love it or you hate it. It is really one of those things. And for me, it does not bother me. It bothers a lot of people, a lot of people, but it's one of those acquired tastes and I got used to it. I could easily go and eat it, but most people, they'll wear those kind of kitchen gloves. So like you'll go up to the food stall and they're serving durian and you put on those kind of plastic gloves and you'll eat, and then you'll take the plastic glove and, and throw it away. Because if you don't, that smell will be with you for maybe two days. I mean, awful it's... Too. You can't understate how awful the smell is. The smell is pretty pungent. Uh, it's... Any of y'all ever just spooned and ate marshmallow paste before, the fluff? Marshmallow fluff. Come on. Somebody's in here has done that. Thank you. I've done it. Thank you. Thank you. That exact texture of marshmallow fluff, if you've ever done that before. Yeah, but it's stinky, and it might have, like, a little bit more of a texture. Like, consider the fluff, like, almost pudding style, and that's what you're getting They've got some other great fruits like rambutan. Uh, they've got um, just mangosteen, which is my favorite fruit, which will make your fingers turn red. But that one, I promise you'd love. I mean, it's, uh, it's just such a unique, unique fruits. It's a, because it's a tropical climate and they have fruits just galore, you can literally walk up to one of these stalls Greg's talking about and get an apple juice that's literally just, just squeezed apple. And it's not like a concentrate. They squeeze it right in front of you, and it's just pure juice from an apple it's it's crazy yeah it's um if you like mango you've never tried mango until you've been in southeast asia and had mango because mango in southeast asia i mean you don't even want ice cream anymore when you have mango fresh in season and any kind of candy or something like that when mango is in season that's all you want to do like every day just have mango not really not in season uh 
Oh, no. Uh, so the, uh, forgive me because I'm talking about uh, exchange rate from last year. So I don't know what the exchange rate is right now. Four to one. So four of their dollars, it's called a ringgit, equals one of our dollars. So I will eat a very full breakfast. I mean, I'm full. I can't eat anymore, and I'm usually eating for no more than three U.S. dollars. So um, on average, it's usually somewhere about a dollar, dollar twenty-five for what I'll spend on breakfast. But you eat Western, you pay the Western prices. So you go and you eat Outback, you can, but you're paying sometimes even a little bit more. There's an Olive Garden that we would go to uh, frequently, but it would be American prices. So, and towards our time there, we just got, we'd want those on occasion, but we would much rather go for the food stalls and the other things that were there. All right, let's move a little more, a little more spiritual. We had enough food. Yeah, (laughs) all this talk about food after our bellies are full. What about um, religions there? The main religion is Islam. If you want to know what kind of Islam, it's Sunni Islam. That's the majority of Islam that we see around in the world today. Um, So the people who are Shia, like from Iran and other parts of Iraq, things like that, or the Sufi Islam, the real mystical stuff, you don't see that as much. So the main religion is Islam. That is the religion of the country. But if you're dealing with Chinese Malaysians, what are they typically? Buddhist. So they're Buddhist. If you're dealing with a Chinese Malaysian, they're typically Buddhist. Indian, some are Hindu. There's a strong Hindu population. But many of the Indian Malaysians are actually Muslim, of a Muslim descent of, so, of sorts. Christianity is, without question, the minority of the major religions. And if there's ever any presence of Christianity, it's because of Chinese Malaysians who have come to faith in Christ. Uh, When it comes to the Malay, this is coming really to the meat of the matter. Malay make up, if you want to be generous and say 50% of the country at the best, then you're talking at a generous estimate, what, 13 people to 15 million people that are Malay in the country. Our best estimates say there might be 2,500 Malay believers in the entire country. Do the math. 2,500 out of maybe 15 million. That is what you refer to as an unreached people group. An unreached people group means 2% of their population or less are, are believers. And that is the case with the Malay people, considering the fact that there are churches in Malaysia, and there is even a Baptist convention in Malaysia, and we we might address that a little bit later on. So the predominant religion is Islam, but if you look at Chinese, the predominant religion, you can't say, oh, your predominant religion is Islam. No, it's not. It's it's Buddhism, you know, or a version of Taoism, and I'm, I'm... I don't know what I'm talking about with all that stuff because I focused on particularly the Malay. So um, it's, a, it's a hodgepodge, but predominantly Islam. What's, what's, uh, what's the family unit structure look like for the Malay? Um, family usually stays pretty close together. The greatest threat to family society in Malaysia is the urbanization of Malaysia. So because of that, and you've got education centers in 
Penang, Kuala Lumpur, other places like that. It's starting to break up what is traditionally what they refer to as kampong type of lifestyle, meaning that's village, where everybody kind of lives in the village and stays close together with mom and dad, that kind of thing. So secularization and urbanization has started to really break up the fabric of a very strong family life that is stronger than what we have here in the United States. They are as thick as thieves. They stick together. Um, they love on one another. Their hospitality is, is, sur- surpasses American culture, without a question. They, they invite you in. They allow you to stay. Uh, they're, they're, they're just really tied in as a family unit, which makes it, on one hand, difficult for you, the outsider, to get on the inside, right, because you're not family, but once you do, then you become family like you've never been family before. So that's kind of the family units that take place. Uh, they have a firm belief in traditional view of, of family. Um, they would practice uh, polygamy uh, if not for the other pressures of uh, the other religions and the other peoples of society. If you talk to a Malay person behind closed door, they'd be open to seeing, oh, yeah, because the Quran affirms it and the Hadiths affirm it, that it's okay to have more than one wife. So they'd say that sometimes, that that's kind of behind closed doors. But they held to a stricter version of traditional marriage than, than of course, the United States does. You know, with the idea of same-sex marriage, that's not even on the radar over there whatsoever. So that's their concept of family, and that's something that is very relatable for people like us. Because we really affirm family and making that kind of a center of identity. And they really relate to that. So they have two, two versions of law enforcement. Uh, first of all is just good old-fashioned police that oversees everything. And that's on the state level and on the national level as well. So very much like us. The second thing that is unique to them is that they have what you refer to as, if you're in the state of Selangor, it's called the Jabatan Agama Islam Selangor, the Department of the Religion of Islam for Selangor. They're police, they're religious police. So I'm over in this one town on the east coast of Malaysia, and uh, I'm interacting with this guy. I'm sharing the gospel with people in a park, then I start interacting with this one guy who's putting up a sign Next thing you know, I've discovered I'm all of a sudden in full-on blown conversation with a religious policeman, which is not a good news for a missionary like me that's serving overseas. But I was able to kind of finagle my way out of that conversation, but he was over there putting up a sign for no kissing in public. That's what the sign was getting put up there for, no kissing in public, because that's what the religious police were there for. So um, the... Uh, there's a good police system there, but it has its plus and minuses. So, so that, that was a great question from Miller Glenn because that's where I was headed next. What about uh, for, for folks like us or for you guys that were living there long term, uh, what is the government, what is their relationship to Christianity, and is it open for proclamation, closed country? If, uh, if you go over there and you function as a tourist but you end up displaying your faith, you're going to have zero problems whatsoever. Zero. Nothing whatsoever. The worst thing that could probably happen to you anywhere on planet Earth, the worst thing that could happen to you is you could get killed, right? You can get killed. So that can happen anywhere. But we're talking um, probability 
you don't even have a probability of this happening, but you could get kicked out of the country. And we don't even know of who, we don't have a story to be able to say, this Westerner got kicked out of the country recently. So when it comes to us, it's fine. When it comes to Christians who are non-Malay, it gets challenging because they have to abide by certain rules because it's an Islamic government. When it comes to Malay who are supposed to be Muslim, who become Christian, their amount of persecution and their amount of um, problems that they have to face are at another level, friends. Just want you to know this. I'll illustrate it with this story. Very dear friend of mine, I call him Pastor Raymond, Uncle Raymond. Um, I met with him when I was packing up my apartment in the, at the beginning of January and just talked about him for future trips coming back and setting things in motion. He is Chinese, Malaysian, not Malay, and has devoted three decades or so to the work of sharing the gospel with Malay people. Not his own ethnicity, but the Malay people, the predominant people. On February 13th, 10 a.m., broad daylight, he gets abducted. Uh, three, black, three black SUVs, a white car, and two motorcycles pull up to him on a road, corner him, take him out of his car, disappears. We have not heard from him since. This is my main guy I partnered with in Kuala Lumpur. Uh, we still haven't heard anything. We are utterly convinced, all of us, that the government is behind this. There's no way that they can stay this quiet on it. And the kind of leads that they've tried to give to the public are so ridiculous that anybody can tell that this is a government kind of uh, uh, cover-up. So I'm bringing that up to say that is the reality of how people engage Christianity for Malay people who come to faith and for the Chinese and Indian Christians in Malaysia who live out their faith. The issue, though, is that it's created a lot of Christians who don't reach out beyond the the community of Christians. Do you understand that? Like, all they want to do is hang out with other Christians, but they're very comfortable to live, eat, work, sleep, breathe, die as a Christian, and never have to really interact with a Malay person. Because that's what the system has taught them to do. The system has taught them to do is that they can have all the peace they want to in the world so long as they don't mess with the Malay people. And that's what the system has developed. So that's their response to Christianity, which is why it's essential for a person like me, maybe people like you, to see how important it is for you to just live life, go over there, and be open to saying hi and sharing Jesus with anyone. They need your courage and, in essence, your American freedom to, you know, for them to experience that so that they can see the importance of getting the gospel to those kind of people. The language, the, the, the common language is called Bahasa Malayu. So one, two, three, Satu Duatiga. So thank you, Tarima Kasi. Uh, you're welcome, Sama Sama. It is supposed to be one of the easiest languages to learn, and I, I struggle with languages. Anybody else struggle with languages? I struggle with languages. I can't. I have a hard time. Yeah, so most of us struggle with English in here, so, I mean, let alone get another language. That's the language that people speak, but the great thing in Kuala Lumpur is so many people speak English. 
so many people speak English. So there, oftentimes when you go and you do mission work overseas, what are you having to do? You have to rely on a translator. You have to rely on somebody like that to help you out. You can go to Kuala Lumpur and with the right resources on how to engage somebody and finding English speakers, you could spend your entire time there personally making friendships, sharing the gospel with people, leading them to faith, seeing them baptized, getting connected and plugged into existing believers there, and that can be something that this church can participate in, all because there's not the language barrier, which is very, very helpful, very helpful. We had a question on the advance, uh, barriers to the advance of the kingdom, but outside of that and uh, the Chinese Malay not being able to share with the other Malay or, or the government, not wanting you to be a Christian in a way. Is there, is there any other barrier? Yeah. Culture is a barrier because the comfort of culture is the barrier. So when, okay, in America, rights, are they, are, are, you, are we supposed to provide rights for majority or for minority? You would hope that you would provide rights, additional rights for minorities to equal playing fields, right? That's what you do. You try to do that to try and equal playing fields. In Malaysia, rights, additional rights, are not given to minorities but to the majority to make sure that they maintain their status. So what are those particular rights or something like that that they have? They will be given tremendous tax benefits. They will be given the first right of refusal for jobs that will become available. They have to make sure that they interview X amount of Malay people for that particular job. If there is an institution, organization, anything like that, they have to meet a certain amount of quota for amount of Malay people at that particular job, that company that's taking place. Okay, That's for the majority of people that are, that's happening. They get their education taken care of. There's a lot of little bonuses and pluses that they have. As a result of it, Malaysia is smart when it comes to Islam. They've set the system up so that people are comfortable in Islam and would never want to leave Islam because they're making it next to impossible for you to leave Islam. Everybody has to put what their religion is on their card. And if you want to officially go through that process, it's a nightmare to the point that they'll even send you to re-education camps to try and brainwash you to convince you that you should not be living, leaving Islam. Islam. So the comfort of culture is the greatest barrier to the gospel, which I believe, guys, bring that home. Let me bring that back here. Let me just bring that back here. Always. I want to do that. I don't want us to always just think over there. Think here. What is the greatest barrier to the people we know of coming to faith in Christ? It's the comfort of their culture. It's the comfort of their life and who they are and what they do. So you have to help people to see their need for Christ, to see the reality of their sin so that they are drawn to the Savior, right? The church. Um, is the church established in Malaysia, uh, specifically Baptist churches? Do those exist there? <clears throat> There's an entire Baptist convention that Southern Baptists work pretty hard at, and I celebrate with them. I preached. Uh, I was a pastor right before I moved to Malaysia. I was a pastor for four and a half years, a church much smaller than this and about 30 people on Sundays, and, and I loved it. Now I went to Malaysia, and I preached about as much in Malaysia at churches as I did when I was pastoring. And some of those churches required that I wear a coat and tie. I mean, they're, they were uh, old-school Baptist and, you know, kind of 
only sang from the hymnal types and that kind of thing. And I loved all my experiences. Absolutely phenomenal. So you got all these churches that exist. But again, what's the common denominator? Most of them, almost all of them, are predominantly Chinese, Chinese Malaysian. So you have on one hand, you rejoice because the gospel and the church is thriving when it comes to Chinese Malaysians. And by the way, they really are suffering tremendously because they have a leadership vacuum. They're not raising up next generation leaders right now. So you need to be praying for the Baptist churches of Malaysia because there's not leaders being brought up right now. And it's, sad. it's a sad thing that's taking place. So that's the case that's happening with the Baptist churches. But with the Malay, um, a guy came to faith. Um, I led a guy to faith. He's a Malay guy. I'm learning as I go, and it's just me and him, and I'm investing in him. He's a Muslim. He's come to faith in Christ, and I'm investing in him, and he's going through a real hard part of depression. He hasn't gone. He hasn't told his family yet, nothing like that, so he's an isolated believer, and it's just me and him. And I'm like, okay, what do I do to provide him community? Because I didn't have, like, another Malay person to introduce him to, right? I didn't have another Malay person to introduce him to. All right, well, I'm preaching at this church. Let me just bring him along. Sometimes the Malay people can blend in. Most times it's not. It's very obvious. That's a Malay person. That's a Chinese person, right? So I bring him, and uh, this, elder, this older man at this church, I could kick him. I could kick him. But I, I, don't, I don't know why he did what he did. He comes up to this guy, and he goes, who are you? He goes, who are you? And to him, well, I'm somewhere else. Who are you? And he just says, he gives him his code name. His code name is Ethan. He's got a very Malay name. It's called Kyrie. You know, that's just a Muslim name. So it goes by Ethan. I'm Ethan. And he goes, he says, no, 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 no. You're Malay. What are you doing here? You shouldn't be doing, you shouldn't be here. What are you doing here? You're Malay. You're a, you're a, I'm trying to, it's kafir, some, some kind of word like that. You're a kafir. You're the worst of the Malay. You're the one that's not a Muslim anymore. You, what are you doing here? This is a Chinese man, elderly man, who's a Christian in a Baptist church that is saying this to this guy, <laughs> this kid, this 21-year-old kid that's showing up for a church for the very first time. So what I'm saying is I rejoice tremendously in the work and all that's taking place in the established churches of Malaysia, but I pray dearly for them that their hearts would be opened to seeing that they need to pay the price and count the cost for seeing Malay people coming to faith in Christ as well. So that is a long way of giving you the status of the church in Malaysia. You would not hear that from everyone. I am an an opinionated man on this subject. I want to make no bones about that. I have a very strong opinion about the role of the Chinese Malaysians as the church with regard to the work of the Malay people. And you will not hear that from all IMB missionaries. So I want to be fair there, okay? Can I, let me make sure I'm doing that so that you guys don't hear just this entire slanted perspective that tries to really diminish the work that's going on. Tremendous, amazing work going on through Chinese Malaysians who are Christians in the Baptist churches. And I love them dearly, and I was preaching in their pulpits Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. But because of my loyalty of getting the gospel to all peoples, I have a very strong opinion when it comes to how we treat people not yet in the fold. Not yet in the fold.
Yeah, it's a, li- it's a little bit of everything. I've been to churches where they have elders. Um, Pontai Baptist Church has a plurality of elders. Uh, and then I've had other churches where it's just lead pastor and deacons. Um, uh, health, wealth, and prosperity gospel is seeping into the global church everywhere. So that's taking place over there. Some of the very popular churches to go to are the Rama churches, if you've ever heard about those kind of things, where it's a form of kind of Pentecostalism. Um, so there's, there's a lot of things like that that is, is um, prevalent. Um, there's a... Uh, I, I don't, I, let's not make an opinion on him, but Joseph Prince, if you've ever seen him on TV, his influence is, is in Malaysia as well. So... Um, there's a lot of influences just like there are in the United States. The leadership vacuum, the le- leadership void that's in the churches right now is because they never want somebody to be called into ministry and just do ministry. The, the work culture is really good when it comes to the Chinese Malaysians. They have a strong work ethic. And so what they want people to do is they want them to work hard, and then towards the tail end of their career, that's when they become the pastors. That's when they become the pastors. So as a result of it, you've got this tremendous void because they don't do anything to raise up next generation leaders. So that's what a lot of people are trying to fix and solve, and I've got very dear friends who are working on that right now. There is a seminary in Malaysia, Malaysia Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, To provide it uh, legitimacy, it is a legitimate seminary, but when it comes to accreditation issues, Southern Seminary in Louisville has partnered alongside of them. So very strong and fortified and had very many good people who've gone over there and taught and helped and encouraged. It's in Penang. And then they have an extension center in Kuala Lumpur. And I was able to uh, teach some classes and do things like that. It's on a smaller scale, but it's present there. And so it's definitely opportunity to help in and through the local church and through the seminaries. <clears throat> IMB, in a way, is. So, like, I never got paid for the work of teaching some classes. I taught some missions classes. I taught Intro to New Testament. Uh, one and two, I taught a, a class on Exodus. I did those kind of classes at Malaysia Baptist Theological Seminary, um, but I never got paid for it, so we're supporting them. Like, And then the way that they'd support me is I was able to kind of utilize that as a platform. So if people ask me, what am I doing? You can't just say, I'm a missionary. You know, you can't say that anymore. So they ask me what I'm doing. I'd say my first round of response would be, I'm a teacher. If they ask more than that, I'd say, I'm a Christian teacher. They say, where are you a Christian teacher? I'd tell them where. And if they wanted to get into detail, I'd say, yeah, I teach the Bible. You want to learn about it? (laughs) So I'd walk down that pathway with people. So um, that's the nature of how IMB helps out. All the Baptist churches Amazing thing, guys. Celebrate with what the Lord has done through the International Mission Board. All the Baptist churches in Malaysia, if you follow it back to its point of origin, there was an IMB missionary who came over there and started that church. So celebrate that. I mean, come on, think about that. There's existing work that's going on, and it's, it's anchored in the local church. And it's because of IMB missionaries in the 50s, 60s, and 70s who went there, helped to start these churches, and they're onwards, and they're going, and they're moving. So I think that's pretty cool. Last 10 or 15 minutes. Let's uh, 
we'll we'll get get a little, quicker than that. A little more related to us here at Poplar Spring. What would it look like for us to have opportunities as a church here or um, to partner with Malaysia and, and possibly even short-term trips there? Okay. So I talked with Matt, with, uh, with Matt about this just briefly already. Anywhere in the world, you need two, one of two approaches, okay? Link into what is already taking place or start a new trail. Anywhere in the world. We're not just thinking of Malaysia right now. Anywhere in the world that you guys as a church are thinking of, you need to plug into what is already taking place or you need to start blazing your own trail. And for some of us, God calls us to blaze our own trail. We're trying to engage a certain region of Kurdistan, our church at Long Hollow Baptist Church. And the region that we're trying to engage, no one else is engaging right now. So we have to piggy off of something that's nearby in order to start blazing a new trail in the Kurdistan area because of little Kurdistan that is in Nashville. We want to connect it for, to Nashville over to overseas. So when it comes to Malaysia, here's your, here's your options. In my opinion... And take it with a grain of salt. You need to understand who's over there in terms of IMB personnel and plug into them and say, what's your strategy? We're following you. Or you begin to start praying and saying, God, we want to plug into a new work. So show us what that is. And that is really your starting point. So your starting point needs to be looking at it from that perspective. And then you, you look at a, a variety of things. Do we want to be urban or rural? Do we want to be Chinese-based? And as a result of it, when you focus on the Chinese-Malaysian Christian base, what are you doing? If, they are, if There's two types of people in the world, lost and saved, okay? If they're lost, what do you do? You evangelize them. If they're saved, what do you do? You help to continue disciple them, right? So when it comes to Malaysia, you kind of say, is our role to come alongside the existing churches to disciple them towards being sanctified in Christ, and towards the fulfillment of the Great Commission that we help them to do likewise, or is ours to come alongside of maybe an IMB missionary, a couple or something like that, that is laboring towards reaching the Malay people directly and doing what we can to do there. So there's two people I'm thinking of in mind. Michael Crane. Michael Crane is the head of the Global Cities team for Kuala Lumpur. Much of his work is connected into the Chinese Christian churches. Okay? So that's what he does. So you could plug into Michael Crane, and you discover what kind of strategy he could provide for you guys to engage. And I really celebrate that, guys. He was my boss. He was the guy who was in charge of me. And I celebrate plugging into him and figuring out what to do. But then there's another guy. His name is Chris McElravey. He lives on the East Coast. Kuala Terengganu is the name of the town. And his is Malay work. You know what he, got? You know what he does? He has a platform. You know what his platform is? Fishing. Fishing. He's created a fishing platform. He's got a visa for it and everything. He's developing fishing as a source of tourism. And he's utilizing Malay people to use for his business that with locals and then some, he's trying to get a lot more internationals to show up to really fortify his business to go and to take them fishing. Now, it's not awesome fishing like you do in Alaska or down in the, uh, the Florida Keys or something like that, but it's decent enough fishing that you'd have a good experience. But he's using that as an entry point into sharing the gospel with the Malay. <clears throat> I wish we weren't so tired and everything right now because if you could really hold, hold tight to this six-fold strategy of the missionary task, it will change your way of thinking about missions worldwide. 
Zane Pratt, the vice president of the International Mission Board, says there are six tasks to the missionary endeavor. You ready? Repeat after me just so we can make sure we're staying awake, all right? You ready? First one, entry. Evangelism. Discipleship. Church planning. Leadership development. Partnership and exit. That is the missionary task. That's the missionary task. It has revolutionized the way that I think the world all over. So entry, evangelism, discipleship, church planning, leadership development, partnership, and exit. So already you're thinking of Malaysia, and you go, what is our entry? Is it taking care of orphans? Is it a business platform? Is it education? What is it? What is our way of entering into the culture? Okay, now that we've established ourselves in the culture, what are we doing to evangelize the people? How do we share, about, share the gospel? How do we do it relationally? How do we do it in an encounter? What are we doing like that? What do we do with regard to discipleship? Now, how do we form churches as a result of it? How do we see leadership, leaders arise and are developed? And then ultimately, at the end, how do we see a partnership take place with the church that has been formed and a way in which we get out of Dodge so that the church can thrive on its own? So that the church can thrive on its own. That is the issue for Malaysia that I'm happy to make this an ongoing discussion with Matt as I'm too now from this side of the ocean trying to engage Malaysia this way. How do I continue to enter into that culture, evangelism, discipleship, church planning, leadership development, so that there's partnership and exit as well? And that will really form the way in which you go about a potential partnership with anywhere. I know you guys have been doing stuff in Uganda. I know you guys are in Baltimore. Got a a family that's in Turkey, is that correct? You know, so there's a lot of these different things. If you can hold tight to those six kind of tasks of a missionary, then you can actually see your role in Turkey, your role in Baltimore, your role in Uganda, all over these places. Because in some cases, you're going to say, it's our turn to leave. That's where we are in the spectrum of things. But in another place, you can say, no, it's our turn to rise up and to enter so we can help get things started. Is a good way of answering that? Uh, what, what other questions y'all have? We'll close here, but any other questions? <clears throat> yes, they do. Conservative. They're, they're pretty conservative, but um, ELA is, Fosro uh, uh, and ELA, dear friends of mine, uh, so funny because she'll wear the hijab and she'll cover up and everything like that, but then we'll invite Fosro and ELA and their son to go to a mall, go watch a movie, something like that. And she'll dress. And now because she's out with us and she's not near her family, she dresses all skimpy-like and everything like that. So it's just like weird. It's like this moral, you know, conundrum that they have. Where, you know, for pretense at some times and then at other times it's just relaxed. But generally speaking, they're covered um, it's a culture where men, you're wearing jeans the whole time. Like you're not, you're pretty much, you're not wearing shorts too much, maybe on some occasions, but you're wearing your jeans or your long pants. And most people don't wear any shoes with shoelaces or anything like that, just because most places you'll take your shoes off before you go into the house. So that's the kind of culture of sandals or something like that. So that's the clothing. Clothing's uh, conservative and it's, um, they'd fit in here. They, they wouldn't, the ladies would look out of the ordinary, but the men wouldn't in terms of what they wear. Any other questions? You guys rock. I mean, this is Sunday afternoon, perfect for nap time, isn't it? This is like perfect nap time, and every single one of y'all are locked in, and 
and listening. So I really am grateful for it, and I pray that it bears fruit for Malaysia. And uh, yes, yeah. Well, I am. I'm because Matt's my boy, and uh, I'm still gonna always give him a hard time for hanging out here and not coming to hang out with me. Um, but um, I'm, I'm always open to see what it looks like for a vision trip and an exploration trip that direction and introducing to you a guy like Chris McElravey. I'm taking upwards of at least three teams, maybe four next year, to Malaysia. And uh, we're building teams around the fact that you're going to be walking around in the malls and you're going to be making these random connections. And then we're going to have a part of our trip where you're going to go over to the East Coast, you're going to do a little fishing, and you're going to hang out and allow him to do the work because you can't do as much work. There's not going to be as much English spoken in that area, but you're validating what he does, and that's really important for his platform. And, uh, and so that's the ongoing conversation that we could have. But keep that in mind for whatever you Lord puts upon your heart. Just embrace it, friends. Whether it, whatever, if it's Malaysia, if it's somewhere else in the world, embrace it and understand your role. Um, uh, my, my encouragement, don't be the church that comes in and exists more for the church here than for the church there. Do you understand what that means? You've kind of done missions for your own purpose, not for the purpose of the place you're going to. Like, keep that in mind. Wherever God leads you, remember that God cares about having a church for himself from every people, tribe, tongue, and nation. So as a result, everything that you need to do needs to labor towards the health of that church there. That's why you're going. Otherwise, don't do missions. Don't do missions. Uh, Why do you have to ask that? (laughs) Uh, I don't know who I was telling earlier on. I think it was Wiley. Um, I don't know how God brought me to Tennessee. I don't have family there. I thought I was going to be in Malaysia. Matt knew this. It was out of left field when he heard the news that I was all of a sudden going to Tennessee. But my heart's connected in there. I guess I can close with this story. 2005, I went there because I just graduated from Sanford. My friend and I wanted to go to some place in the world. He picked 10 places in the world. I picked 10 places in the world. Three of them matched Peru, Nepal, and Malaysia. Over the phone, he tells me, he says, let's go to Malaysia. I said, why? He says, I think they have cool beaches. So we went to Malaysia. We just graduated because somebody (laughs) told us that they had cool beaches there. We show up, we live with this Malay family, that Ibu lady. We live with this Malay family for the entire summer. It really wasn't that great of a summer. But what I discovered that entire summer was that that village, that Kampong, Kampong Kanchong Darat is the name of the area, there was not a soul, even with a Methodist church that was not too far away from that village, there was not a soul who ever tried to engage anyone with the gospel in that village. Nobody. And I remember that very last night, they have a private prayer room in their house. My friend and I, Michael, we bawled our eyes out and just said, Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Because there was nobody to share the gospel with them. And I left and I got back on that plane. And I just knew in my spirit that the Lord was going to connect my heart to the Malay people for the rest of my life. I have no idea why. I had no connection to him whatsoever. But God did that and he used it. And so... If he brings me back, I'm going to praise God. I'm actually asking every day, God, take me back. I'm ready. I'm ready. I just want to do whatever you want me to do. And so as an encouragement to you, 
I'm praying for you as a church to feel that deep, deep purpose and connection to somewhere on planet Earth and to a people group who's not yet known Christ, that you would just start to be burdened for them and you'd see people rise up and start giving them the gospel. 2,000 years is a long time coming for some groups of people on planet Earth to still have not yet heard about Christ. Thank you guys for being here. It's funny, Greg, our hearts are united in a lot of ways, but one of the ways is Malaysia, and my story of getting to Malaysia is almost identical. Mitchell, who you guys know, a uh, real close friend of mine, we did the same thing. We said, let's pick three countries. If any of them overlap, we're going there together the next summer. And so for you guys that are thinking about college, maybe, I know there's some, some guys in the room that are younger, uh, let God have your summers. It, it, it could change the rest of your life. Um, and so we did the same thing, but here's a funny story on Mitchell, and I'll tell this as we end because you know him, and if you see him soon, you could, uh, you could make fun of him. He looks at me, calls me, and he says, man, the beaches. He said the same exact thing. Like, that's what's so funny about this story. He goes, they have tropical climate and beaches and Orangutans. I said, what? He said, yeah, the, the, I'm reading the paragraph right here. It says beaches, sea turtles, Orangutans. Dude, I don't know what an Orangutan is. And, I, and then it hit me. <coughs> That's orangutan, you moron. <laughs> so if you see Mitchell, you, you make fun of him. <coughs> An orangutan. <coughs> oh, your bio I got from Long Hollow says you like, um, it's a Thai dish. Tom Yum. Tom Yum. Tom Yum, which is a Thai dish, is it was a Chinese version of Tom Yum in the Cameron Highlands, which is the one area where it's not hot in all of Malaysia, uh, tea plantation kind of area, gorgeous spot. And, yeah, it's my favorite dish probably in Malaysia. So, you ever had Tom Yum? Any of y'all had it before? Uh, Tom Yum is like a broth. It's, uh, that one was a seafood broth and a lot of real small noodles and then it's a host of vegetables and shrimp, and sometimes chickens in it, and it's spicy, and it's really good. They do, but a halal beef, all the blood has to be drained from it. If it's prepared properly, okay. There you go. Okay, well, then then we're good. We're tracking, and you won't get pork there. Well, you get pork, but in... Definitely the non-Muslim spot. Let's do this to close. Uh, I know you guys, thank you for being here uh, today and, and uh, the rest of your evening. I pray <coughs> God blesses it and you have a day of rest. Uh, but to, let, to close, uh, Greg's in a new position, fairly new position at the church that he's in. He's, um, he's got a wife and four youngins and has been away from them. Um, Abby, his wife, just got back from Uganda two days ago and he left to come be with us. And so... Uh, I'd love for us to close uh, laying hands on him and praying for him at Long Hollow and the work that they're doing. They're brothers and sisters in Christ in Hendersonville, Tennessee, and pray that God would use him as a missions pastor to lead their folks to the nations. And then, brother, if you would, I'd like for you to pray for us and whatever it is that God's leading us to uh, as our next partnership uh, internationally. So if you'd be willing to come lay hands on Greg, and uh, David, would you lead us, brother, in praying for Greg and Abby and their family as they lead at Long Hollow?